and welcome to the Sober Bliss Podcast with me, Gail, and my amazing guest. I finally quit drinking for good in March of 2018, and one of the things that helped me was connecting with people on the same journey as me, hearing their stories and finding inspiration. No matter where you are on your journey to sobriety, I hope you enjoy listening to these stories and hope they bring you inspiration, joy and light so you can find your own sober bliss. Hi everyone and welcome to Sober Bliss. Today I'm really, really excited and delighted because I'm speaking to the wonderful Annie Grace. Hi Annie. Hi Gail, so wonderful to be here. You too, thank you. So how's the weather where you are? It looks lovely and sunny. It is sunny today. We've had snow up until recently, but it's really, I think it's turning a corner, hopefully. So, oh, yeah. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. Um, well, for those people who don't know, and I'm not sure there's many of those around, <laughs> but could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you, please? Yeah, of course. So um, my name is Annie Grace, and I've written two books, uh, This Naked Mind and The Alcohol Experiment. And both books, specifically This Naked Mind, as it was my first, came from, you know, really my own journey in finding myself in corporate life, drinking far more than I ever intended, and using it to cope, even when I didn't really drink much in high school or in college, and really wondering why, when I tried to cut back, it felt painful. It felt like I was missing out or I was depriving myself of something, especially when I didn't feel like that before, when I had such vivid memories of having a great time without alcohol, of relaxing without alcohol. And, uh, really, my journey to say, okay, the big pivotal question was, well, well, what changed and how did it change and what does that mean? And so I did something sort of bizarre. I stopped trying to manage it and moderate and, and quit drinking. I just said, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let that kind of be for a minute because it had been causing me so much internal anxiety, so much angst to make promises that I wouldn't keep to say, okay, nothing until... Friday and then I'd end up having, you know, a few drinks on Wednesday or, you know, only, only two glasses of wine. And then I'd end up having four or five or more than I could count. And mm -hmm. that happening over and over really undermined my confidence. It undermined my belief that I could do, you know, this, it undermined my self, you know, worth. It was a really kind of terrible place to be. And I saw that snowball happening and said, all right, I need to get kind of, I need to step out of this cycle and just dedicate myself, no matter what the answer is. You know, if I find out that yeah, alcohol is actually the missing link in my life and it's making everything beautiful and wonderful and I should never stop if that's what I find out, okay. But if I find out something else, I'm gonna just follow what I learn. And so I really went on this journey different. And that took me about uh, 13 months, 12 to 13 months of pretty intense research. Um, but during that time, not trying to moderate, not trying to put brakes on, not trying to do anything, just really saying, I am going to make the time to understand what's happening here. And I looked into the brain, I looked into the subconscious mind, I looked into alcohol itself, I looked into neuro neurology and neuroplasticity and so many things. And then I came out of my office one day and I told my husband, I was like, all right, well, you know, I think I'm, I'm done drinking. So if you want to drink with me tonight, tonight, we can have our, you know, typical bottle of wine. But then after that, you know, I'm, I'm done. And he was like, yeah, right. Like, didn't believe me, but we, we drank our bottle of wine. Um, and then sure enough, that was, that was really it. And I just kind of didn't look back and it was so freeing because it wasn't any longer a willpower thing. It wasn't as if I was trying to mm -hmm. abstain from something I wanted. And it yeah. was a, really, really good time. And then how the book ended up coming about is I was like, okay, other people need to know this stuff that I've learned, like this stuff. And by the way, I was telling my friends and <laughs> that's a good way to look, to lose your friends. Luckily I have graceful friends, but I'd show up to all the, I, I literally showed up in Las Vegas um, on a group that a bunch of us college friends and our husbands were on. And I was like, you guys, you never, oh my gosh, can you believe this? Alcohol does this to your brain and alcohol does this to your body. And what are we doing? And our whole society's been duped. And I'm like, just on this soapbox bandwagon, like yeah, insanity. And they're just like, what has happened to you? What have you done with my friend? 
And, um, but I did feel so powerful, like somebody does want this information. So I just took all my research in journals and put it out for just a free download online, uploaded a PDF yeah. and like 20,000 people downloaded it in the first two weeks. It was wow. crazy. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is something. And I started getting letters from all over the world saying, um, this helped me too. This was the thing. This made it stick. This changed my life. And so I was like, okay, I need to figure out how to actually get this a book. And I reached out to a few publishers and they're like, well, you don't have a platform. And I was like, okay, that's true. And then the other aspect was that it usually took, you know, between 18 to 24 months. 18 was like the earliest. Usually it was 24, sometimes more, you know, longer than two years to get a book published. And I was like, okay, no, people need this now. There's no way I'm waiting that long. Yeah. So I said, okay, how can I figure out how to self-publish it? And so I looked into that whole thing, figured out how to self-publish it and self-publish this Naked Mind, um, October 15th of 2015. Wow. And so it's just kind of been crazy since then because it really did catch fire word of mouth. I think when something like truly does work, it just, yeah. it just, you know, it just has a life of its own. Something I, <laughs> I'm just like, you know, riding the coattails and okay, let me do what I can do. But, um, also knowing very much that this whole thing, you know, with people waking up to what alcohol is in their lives and, and how detrimental it is and how much it's taking from them instead of giving to them. And, you know, this whole movement of sobriety is truly happening no matter what. Like, and I just feel, you know, really privileged to be able to come on and be a part of it. But I also understand like this is going to happen if I'm here, if you're here, it's just happening. It's just this human awakening of our time yeah. and it's really beautiful. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. So what was that? Uh, last bottle of wine like then the one that you shared with your husband because obviously it was unlike any other bottle of wine that you've ever had before because you knew stuff that you didn't know before so what was that like it was wholly unmemorable <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was like I I do remember and it was this was really I think just kind of the I, I want to, not to sound too cliche, but say like icing on the cake. I um, was very used to drinking well over one bottle by myself. Mm -hmm. And that was really typical. I don't remember what wine it was. I don't remember anything about it. I just knew it was in a bottle, not a box. And <laughs> we had been generally drinking boxed wine because I had, you know, a real big problem opening that second bottle. That was like one of those little red flags, like, hey, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And so I'd started buying boxes so that that little, you know, voice saying, what are you doing would shut up and go away. And I could just, you know, carry on well past one bottle. And um, that night, I remember we split and drank that one bottle and I got sick. And so I probably only drank half or a little more. I usually drink faster than my husband did anyway, but maybe I drank even three quarters of that bottle and I got sick. Mm -hmm. And it was just one of those things where, you know, at that time with how much I was drinking and how high my tolerance was, there's no way I actually should have gotten sick from that wine. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't drink anything else, but I remember throwing up and I did not, I mean, the mm -hmm. times that I had thrown up from drinking in the last I mean, probably five or six years of my drinking because my tolerance was so high because I knew how to navigate it so I wouldn't get sick because I was like a very seasoned, like practiced drinker. Yeah. <laughs> it was very few and far between. I mean, almost, I can't even remember very many at all. Yet that night I did, I got sick and it was just almost as if it, the, you know, the whole universe was saying, this is the right choice mm -hmm. and I'm just going to just prove it to you just a bit more, you know? Yeah, yeah. And um, after you had that last bottle of wine and you decided okay that's it never again obviously you were very clear in your mind but did you have any kind of cravings after that so this is another really atypical part of my story because I didn't actually a few things I think that happened number one I didn't decide okay right never again mm -hmm. um you know, I, I knew from my research and I knew from like really a lot of internal journaling and self-discovery that every time I put rules and limits on myself, I just wanted what I said I couldn't have. It yeah. was like this, like, I mean, literally I could feel it. I, I could feel myself. And you know, now I'm almost five years in and I can say, yeah, I, the chances of me drinking again are pretty much nothing. I, I don't have any and even saying that out loud doesn't affect me anymore. Like I can be like, yeah, I'm never going to have a drink again. That doesn't, it doesn't have the same, you know, strength it did. But in those early days, that idea of like, 
I'm never going to drink again. It made me buck against it. So I didn't say that. I said, you know what? I'm going to drink as much as I want whenever I want. I'm just going to be really mindful about do I actually want this drink, knowing everything I know. And I'm going to revisit the knowledge if I need to and mm-hmm. really understand it. And, um, and so I made that choice for myself, which really served me. I don't know that that's right for everybody. I think there are very different types of people. Some people, you know, they are kind of that like, no, I need the rules. I need the rigidity. I need the structure. And I think you really need to honor what's true for you. Yes. Uh, really important. But that was what worked for me. And then the other thing that I did along with that, and this was, again, really interesting, is I'd say I don't know how many days it was later. Um, and it's funny because I, I have the videos and I know the day that I stopped drinking. So I feel like I could probably piece it together, but I think it was probably two to three months afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I had just started to really like wonder, like, was I right? Like, wait a second, all my friends, you know, I'd be drink, hanging out with my friends. They'd be drinking. I'd be drinking my soda and lime and they're seeming fine. Like nobody's having ill effects outwardly. I'm like, no, this, you know, and it was, I remember it was like St. Patrick's day and I was just kind of like, huh, you know, everybody's having a good time. And, and I, I knew enough that I was never going to drink in the moment. Like it was going to be a mindful decision. That was one thing that I, I was very clear on. I was never going to just kind of give in in the moment. That was very, much not what I was going to do. Cause I knew, I knew about how the subconscious mind worked and I knew that if I was having a great time and then I had a drink, my brain would instantly say, Oh yeah, drinking is key to having a good time. When I also knew that was totally false from a neurochemical perspective. So I was like, I'm not going to slip into it equally. If I was having a miserable time and completely emotional, anxious, numb, whatever. And then I had a drink Mm-hmm. I knew that my brain was, the drink was going to numb me enough to really say like, okay, yes, alcohol is what, you know, helped you get out of that and it helped you relax and it helped you have a good time. So I, I knew that I wasn't going to do it in the moment. That was kind of a, what I call a non-negotiable. It's mm-hmm. never going to be in the moment, but that moment passed St. Patrick's day. And I was kind of like, huh, you know, I, I really want to know if I'm missing out. I want to know for myself. I want to know definitively. So what I did is I, um, I told my husband, we planned it out. It was about, you know, a week and a half of planning. We waited for a night where, you know, he could watch the kids downstairs. And I ended up setting up my camera and my iPhone on a tripod um, or like rigged tripod, hilarious. And just like, I, I remember I wanted it filmed. So I like put up a sheet behind me <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get drunk and I'm going to check in with the camera yeah. every 15 or 20 minutes. And so I filmed myself um, getting drunk over, and I had two bottles of wine. I planned to drink two, but again, my tolerance, even after those few months was nothing. So I, I did drink an entire bottle of wine. I did um, not quite get sick, but very close, very much had the spins, but I filmed it. I filmed the whole thing. And the truth is that I woke up the next morning knowing without a shadow of a doubt that there was nothing there for me that there was nothing there. Like even the beginning, those early tipsy feelings that, that uh, make you feel like that's what hooks us in the, in the first place. Right. That like spike Mm -hmm. of euphoria, you know, I timed it. It was 20 minutes and it was not even that great. It was almost like just the edges around the room got fuzzy. I felt like a little, little surge of energy, but it was kind of like a anxious surge of energy. It wasn't like a nice surge of energy. It was kind of like, okay, I'm, I'm slightly off off balance not like off balance like you're dizzy but just like okay the world has shifted a bit yeah but it wasn't pleasant it I I recognized the feeling because I'd felt it so many times before but what I had thought was pleasant was it wasn't actually pleasant when I detached all the all the meaning from it and what I had since learned is that um when you are when you are continuously drinking, you are continuously creating this withdrawal. So, you know, the alcohol is addictive. It comes into your system. And as it leaves, your body goes into a very slight withdrawal every single day. And so that withdrawal feels uncomfortable. And guess what? That discomfort from the withdrawal can be relieved by the next drink. And so it's this constant cycle that you're on. And when you don't have that, so it was almost like, Imagine this, right? If you if you scratch your arm really, really hard, it can feel really good if you have a huge mosquito bite. 
<laughs> but if you don't have a huge mosquito bite, scratching your arm does not really feel good, especially if you're scratching it hard. You're like making it red and raw and it doesn't feel good. And it was the exact same situation when I didn't have the withdrawal from the previous drinks because I hadn't been drinking for months. The alcohol didn't feel good. And so, and then the drunk part happened. Mm. And I couldn't watch the videos, Gail. I mean, I remember like just for years and years, I actually watched the videos for the first time just about a year ago because we were doing our first live event in Denver. And um, I was like, right, you know, or no, sorry, it was a, a little bit longer than that. It was the first time I launched the alcohol experiment. It was like a 30 day challenge online. And I said, I want to show these videos because I want to give this as like a tactic if somebody wants to try this, you know, and I want to show my videos. So I went through and I watched them and I like edited them down to like a 15 minute video. And it was, it was painful, but I couldn't watch them for years and I didn't need to, there was no need for me to watch the videos. I just, yeah, I just knew I was like, there's nothing in there for me. And for me, that was, it was so pivotal and it was so, um, there was so much freedom in that just every, like after that cravings, like if something came up and I was like, Oh, I feel like I'm missing out because of a drink. I'd be like, Oh no, wait. I remember what alcohol actually makes me feel. And I just find something that made me feel like I wasn't missing out. Like maybe, you know, something sweet to drink or, mm. um, you know, something nice or whatever. And I just got creative with finding other ways to make myself feel part of things or feel included. But yeah, it was a really interesting experience. <clears throat> yeah. I remember you wrote about that in your book, didn't you? And you said that you, um, you didn't put any music on, you didn't have the TV on, you were completely alone. So you didn't associate it with, you know, relaxing music and things like that. It was just the alcohol. Yeah, and I think that's really important, you know, um, because if alcohol is really fun, truly fun, it yeah. should be fun without anything else, mm. right? Like um, for me, you know, going for a walk, I find fun. I don't need to be watching TV while I'm on my walk. I don't need to be listening to music while I'm on my walk. Like I will still enjoy it, right? So if something is actually fun, you should be able to enjoy it without anything else. Exactly. And um, so that was really important. And I think it is really important because even like Netflix and wine, right? I remember so many nights um, when my husband was working late and I would turn on the TV and watch whatever guilty pleasure show of the moment and have my wine and completely think that, it wouldn't have been as fun without the wine. Yeah. You know, the great thing about that, I will tell you, is that I can now rewatch those shows and have no memory of them in the first place. So <laughs> double <laughs> So do you think that it's important then when somebody is considering sobriety or, um, you know, this lifestyle change, do you think it's important that they understand what alcohol actually does to us physically and mentally and not just try and, you know, kind of get through it or white knuckle it or anything. I think there's a few factors. I think that number one, it, it really, there is absolutely a physical and chemical aspect of this. Like there's a physical dependency that was creating that withdrawal symptom, that itch that I was scratching. And, um, and you know, that like, that lasts a few weeks. Yeah. And so if you have it where you're more than a few weeks out <laughs> and you've gotten for, through those first few weeks and you still find yourself really craving or really wanting alcohol, that's emotional. That's mental. You know, that's really cognitive. That's where, yes, I think it's vital that you understand what alcohol is and what it does to your body because you're going to stay stuck there. Now, I know that lots and lots, you know, many people have just reached a point where they're like, no more. I can't do this to myself anymore. No matter what it is, no matter how bad it is, I'm just not going to do it. And the thing is that you can reach that over time. Like over time, you can have enough life experiences without alcohol to have proven to yourself very definitively like, oh, okay, you know, I've, I've been to enough football games now without a drink that I know football's fun without a drink. Um, but you can shortcut that process by really saying, okay, what is it in alcohol that makes it fun? What are the chemicals? How does it affect my brain? Oh, that's interesting. How long does it last? Oh, 20 to 30 minutes. 
Oh, that's a bummer. How long does it, you know, make me feel bad after that? Oh, two to three hours. Ooh, yikes. And then cognitively, you know, these things, you have these tools. So then your first football game, you can approach it with a, okay, I'm curious. There's a chance I might have fun here. Whereas if you're just white knuckling it, your first football game, you're just going through it to get through it. You know, I know so many um, people who have that sobriety story and there's nothing wrong with it because it will come. It just might take longer, you know? And so I don't think there's any wrong way. Absolutely. But I do think it can be so helpful to educate yourself because you really can free yourself of that, those emotional chains a lot sooner. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Have you always been interested in science and things then, or did you get this passion when you did your research for yourself? always interested in science. I have a master's yeah. in science. Um, oh, and really? yeah, and it, it was actually specifically to like consumer behavior science and marketing, but it is technically a master's in science from um, Colorado University, the University of Colorado. And I um, have always been interested in how things work. Now, I think I've, I've struggled to like go into like physics or something because I have, have always had a really hard time with math and those things go hand in hand. But, yeah. you know, reading something like A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking and just understanding that there's, you know, actual mathematical equations to back up the theories, that's enough for me. I yeah. just want to under, I just want to think about the theories. I want to think about, you know, it the abstract and how things fit together and how things work and I've yeah, I've absolutely always been fascinated with the okay, well why is this? And I think I've just always had this very um innate curiosity of saying like this doesn't make sense. And and I've had you know something that I I will credit my parents with because I was raised in a very alternative situation, a, you know, tiny little log cabin on the back of a mountain, no running water, no electricity. My parents were hippies. And so um, they were just very free thinkers, very much into just, you know, like there was no, they were very, they took the social norms of their upbringing, you know, a pretty conservative religious Christian upbringing, and then a Jewish upbringing and kind of mm-hmm. threw them off and said, you know, what, we're just going to, we're just going to be like children of the earth and, and question and figure things out. And so I, I didn't have a lot to unlearn from, a, um, from like, you know, a perspective of like, this is true because everybody said it's true. So when I approach things like, I'd be like, wait, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter that nobody else sees that this doesn't make sense. Like for me, it didn't make sense to me why. And it didn't matter to me that none of my friends were asking that question. Like, I think very quickly people can say, huh, this doesn't make sense. Or I'm curious about that. But then they can look around and they can be like, but someone else would have asked that first or, you know, someone else would have found that. Why isn't anybody else? So no, it must, it must be nothing. And I just kind of didn't have that. Like, I was like, no, like I, maybe I, have that like voice in my head saying, Oh no, somebody else might've asked this. So I was just, really innately curious about why things and how things worked and very curious about how I worked. (laughs) (laughs) Why is this different for me? You know, and I think I have um, a relatively low threshold for discomfort. And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, not that that's necessarily a good thing, but I think that it served me well. Like if I was in a career that was really uncomfortable or working for somebody or in a friendship that turned out to be really uncomfortable, I would pretty, I was, I've never been one to be like, oh, well, it's just, I've always been like, huh, no, there's got to be a better way, yeah. you know? And so when, when I started getting really uncomfortable with my drinking, um, I was like, no, there, there has to be something, something that, that I'm missing. And I really approached it from, from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. Um, so obviously you were clear in yourself and you were happy with your decision and the choices that you'd made. Did you come up against any challenges from other people or society in general? Yes, for sure. I mean, I remember um, the first business trip that I went on to Brazil oh. and I hadn't been down there and the, the Brazilians that I, you know, my colleagues, we, 
we had drank all over the world together. We would like watch the sunrise in Dubai a few months ago. And, um, and then I had stopped drinking like kind of on a dime. And I remember going down there and they had been so excited to show me their local drink and to show me, you know, the different liquors and to show me a good time and to take me out dancing and all this stuff. And I was like, no, no, we're still going to do all that stuff. I'm just ordering the juice. <laughs> like I want, I want the pina, pina agua or whatever, you know? And, um, it was, but some people were accepting and some people were like, really like disappointed like a strange level of disappointment to where if I was pregnant or on medication it would have been okay but since I was just not drinking just for the sake of it like it was it was not okay (laughs) and um it was very eye-opening and that was one of many different trips like that I took internationally and that was probably the most intense one that's why I bring it up but Mm -hmm. it was it was really eye-opening and you know, I've since learned, and it's really true that absolutely across the board, the people who kind of react the strongest are just re- are just showing you what's inside them. Yeah. That's all they're doing. They're just showing you the fear that's inside them. You know, I remember when my friend uh, stopped drinking, she actually got sober um, almost 10 years ago now, and she went to AA. And she came home from AA and she's like, you guys, I stopped drinking and I'm going to stop. Like I'm done. And I was like, I remember I reacted the strongest. Mm-hmm. I was the one who was like, wait, no, you don't really have a problem. No way. Like we drink together. What does that mean about me? And I was, I really grilled her. I really, and I, you know, I'm ashamed to say that there was many times in the few years between when she stopped and when I stopped that I would make her feel uncomfortable by like being like the first, you know, everybody else is kind of like, Oh, you know, she's here. We don't have to drink. And I'm like, no way, dude, I'm drinking. Like it's her choice not to drink. It's my choice to drink. Like Mm. I'm ordering the wine. And, um, and so I think I made, I certainly, you know, when I look at that in my own experience, I'm like, Oh, that was, that was from fear. That was from me having feeling like I needed to double down on my decision. Otherwise, what could be wrong with me? What if I had a problem? What if I was also broken? What if there was something that I needed to fix? What if this was, you know, and, and because I was already thinking all those things at like a subconscious at a deep level, even at a conscious level in the middle of the night, sometimes um, her, her stopping drinking was really shining a mirror up to myself. And so now if I, if I could back, go back and tell myself, like, don't worry, people aren't attacking you. People are just showing you what's inside them. They're showing you their own fear. They're showing you their own insecurities. They're showing you their own points of um, sensitivity and pain. I yeah. think I could have navigated it a bit better than I did, but um, it was certainly, you know, there's, it, it, is, it is a bit of a minefield, I would say. Mm, yeah, I agree. I agree. I've had similar experiences with family even you know who just don't get it I think that's it they don't get it and they see you doing that and like you say they kind of start thinking about themselves and worrying about that and they don't necessarily mean to be unkind but they just can't help it somehow yeah absolutely where do you live Gail I live in Spain but I'm from the northeast of England okay yeah yeah so is it Probably even more so to some degree. I don't know. I mean, everybody says their country is like the the booziest country. We all believe that about our own countries, but it it does like Spain has quite a reputation for. Well, they do. And my village is really tiny. I think we have about 1,100 people full time here. And there's about, I think there's eight bars, which in the summer, especially, are open like 24 hours a day. and it's very common at 10 o'clock to see the workmen having, you know, sharing a bottle of beer with their breakfast. Um, there's wine at lunch. There's obviously tapas uh, before dinner. And then there's, you know, alcohol with dinner and then afterwards. And I remember once I went into the town hall in the winter really early to do some paperwork. And they offered me a shot of something. And I was like, that's eight o'clock in the morning and they said oh it's really good for the cold I know (laughs) I know and I drank it as well and I was a bit you know woozy at eight o'clock in the morning it's like what's going on but it's quite normal for them in all the shops Mm -hmm. at Christmas time they offer customers little shots of 
whatever. So yeah, yeah. But funnily enough, we didn't tell anybody. I stopped drinking with my husband. We stopped together. We didn't tell anybody at, at first. And when we did gradually explain to people, you know, yeah, we weren't drinking anymore. The Spanish people, they couldn't really care less. They were like, yeah, whatever. Here's an alcohol-free beer. But nice. the British people living here, they were like, what? You can't live in Spain and not drink. So that was a bit of a surprise, definitely. Interesting. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, you said it's been more, almost five years now since you stopped. Um, what is the one thing, if there is one thing, that you know your your top two, your top strategy for helping you stay on the path? Um, it's funny because I don't I don't even feel like I I'm, I make any effort anymore to stay on the path. Um, <laughs> yeah, great. So it's it's an interesting thing, but. I'm trying to think back to early days. Mm. It was so clear for me. Like it was, it was just so clear, especially after that experiment that this wasn't, mm. it wasn't like there was no option. You know, it was like, um, I remember I'll, I'll give this analogy cause I think it's a good one. After my second son was born, uh, I started having this insane cramping pain on a very irregular basis. And I could not tell where it came from, what was happening. And so um, it turned out my doctor said it's probably a food sensitivity. So you need to start eliminating different foods and, and see what works. And so after about six months of this, and I mean, one time I almost was put in hospital because it was just so painful. And I thought something was seriously like out that it was eggs. And, um, and it was funny because I found out it was eggs. I knew it was eggs. And then that time that I almost went to the hospital, somebody had brought in these egg sandwiches and I didn't realize it had egg in it. And so I ate one. And then all of a sudden, a few hours later, I was just basically on the floor and it was just so painful. But the thing about it is that when I found out that it was eggs, I mean, I, I love eggs. Eggs are great. Eggs are in everything, you know, yeah. they're great sorts of protein. There's so many ways you can make them. They're super good. Um, but now that I know that eggs cause me really severe stomach pain, I don't have to make an effort to try to not eat eggs anymore. You know, I mean, obviously there was the accidental time and now I need to be more careful about making sure there's no eggs in my food, but it, it was such a, yeah, it's a little sad, like, oh, bummer eggs were good, but so much more relief that my relief like far outweighed my sadness because it was like, Oh, thank goodness. Like, I don't, I don't have to do that anymore. I don't have to have a hangover anymore. I don't have to say anything stupid anymore. I never have to throw up from drinking. I never have to feel the spins or the shakes or have that weird alcohol smell on my skin. I never have to have my kids come up to me and say, my teeth are purple. I never have to wonder <laughs> if I said anything bad to my husband. Like, thank goodness. Like, Oh, yeah so much gratitude, you know, to know that, okay, eggs were the culprit. I don't have any more pain or alcohol was the culprit. And, um, and I think you only really have to maintain an effort when you feel like there's really a benefit, you know, like with eggs, I can get that same protein in other ways. There's other things I can eat. So there's, you know, it's no real benefit and it certainly doesn't outweigh the cost. And same yeah. with alcohol, you know, there's, there's so many things that I can drink and I, I drink like more liquid than anybody I know. In fact, everybody I know makes fun of me about it because I'm always having like, you know, I've got my, my, uh, <laughs> my decaf coffee. It's really risque. And then, you know, I'll probably make some tea next. And then I've got like lots of sparkling waters and I just always have something in my hand and, you know, I'm, I make it kind of fun, but, um, yeah, it really, because I don't, I don't see the benefit. I haven't had to put a lot of, of effort into it. And I think that's something that comes from the way I sort of did it too, is mm -hmm. because all my effort happened before I stopped yeah. drinking. You know, that was my years of moderation or trying to moderate and it not working. That was my years of research and knowledge. That was my years of mindset shift. And, um, and you know, I've really tried to, to write the book in the same way where you don't stop drinking at the beginning of the book. You're not even asked to stop until the end of the book where it's like up to you because 
I think, you know, going through that before makes it so that on the other side, there is relatively little effort and it's, it's really freeing. Yes, definitely. I agree. I agree. What's the best thing do you think then about having an alcohol free life now? I think, um, I think there's so, okay. I, 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 there's so many things I could say. I think that really the best thing is being back in touch with me. Mm-hmm. I think that alcohol takes you and yourself and puts a big fat barrier right in between it because, you know, your, your deepest self, your highest self, your inner self, your guide, your intuition is always trying to speak to you and it, it uses the tools it has. And sometimes, Hey, guess what? This man isn't right for us or this situation isn't right for us or this business partnership isn't right for us or you need to be on your guard here. And when we are always pouring alcohol onto our discomfort, we drown out that inner voice. We drown out that intuition. Mm-hmm. And so um, to have that part of me fully reawakened and to be super sensitive to it and be like, huh, okay, like I'm just, I'm just going to live with all of it, you know? And yeah, is it easy? No. I mean, I woke up this morning. I was just telling my friend Jennifer, I woke up with like just the craziest anxiety this morning. And it was just hours of it. And I'm like, everything is just falling apart and nothing is falling apart. But it just felt like, it felt like a weight on my, on my heart and it felt like a pit in my stomach. And it was, it was so real and um, it's eased up now, but like, that's just, that just happens to me sometimes. And mm-hmm. just to be like, okay, that's okay. Is it, is it going to kill me? No. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. Can I just get curious about it and watch it and see what it does and how long it lasts? Yeah, I can. And by the way, who said I always have to be comfortable? Who said I, I never need to feel pain? Who said I never need to feel discomfort? And so I think just, and when you do that, when you start to live through your discomfort and you start to live into the parts of your life that, you know, may be trying to tell you something, a few things happen. Number one, you start to change those things. You start to, if there's something really wrong, you start to fix it. You know, if you're really in a job that's sucking your soul away, if you stop drinking, you can't stay in that job (laughs) because it's too uncomfortable. If you're really in a relationship that is absolutely wrong for you and making less of who you need to be in the world and stifling your spirit, you can't stay in that relationship fully awake. And that's a beautiful thing. Yes, it's freaking painful, but it's beautiful. And, um, so you start changing the things that, that are really wrong. And then you start noticing when you just feel emotions and nothing's really wrong and you become the observer and you develop, you know, emotional resilience because you say, guess what? This storm I'm feeling, I felt this this morning. I journaled about it. I woke up and I was like, I've been here before. Mm-hmm. I've been here before. And I survived it. Yes. And in a few hours it will pass. And if I don't let myself go into the dark place of starting to assign this intense anxiety to something, maybe it's my husband, maybe it's how bad I'm parenting right now, or my kids, or you know, whatever the case is, give it some you know, nasty mm-hmm. meaning, it won't, it won't last because it doesn't have anything to latch onto. Whereas before, mm-hmm. if I would have woken up with that anxiety, I would have said, no, there's something wrong. I couldn't feel this way without something being wrong. So I would have said, no, I'm, I'm just the worst mom ever. And this is what's happening. And I would let that live for days and days and days because I'd, I'd attach all my thinking to it. Whereas now I can feel them. I, I get that anxiety and it's literally like there's all these little people inside me. They're all me but they're all the most scared parts of me or the most judgmental punishing parts of me. And they're all yelling and they're all saying, who are you to do this? And what about me? And this is wrong and that is wrong. And I can just kind of hear them all and be like, Oh man, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pick any of you up and make you true because you're just making a lot of noise right now. And, and that level of observation never possible when I was drinking, like never even close, you know, and it doesn't mean that the emotions are gone. I think I feel emotions much more so. I think I went through you know, probably a decade of not even ever shedding a tear when I was drinking, but I was also living this really numb life where the, the highs were dampened and the lows weren't even there. And so it was like, 
it, it just wasn't really worth it. And so to be back in touch with this life that's really full of all the emotions and the whole spectrum and everything that I'm experiencing, um, yeah, that's, that's the best part without a doubt. Yeah, yeah. Because we're supposed to feel all of these things, aren't we? Otherwise, you know, what's the point if we don't feel them? And I completely agree with what you say, you know, the highs with alcohol were just, you know, not really proper highs and the lows, well, either, you know, you may certainly blow everything out of proportion and it was a complete disaster and the world was ending. Um, or like you say, you know, it was just kind of flat. Life was just flat. But now there's ups and downs and yeah, you deal with them and but that's part of life. That's what it's for. That's what it's all about. <laughs> so do you think that um, this mindfulness has come, um, obviously, without, with leaving alcohol behind? You become more mindful and aware of, of everything. Uh, and is that an important part of your life now? Yes, for sure. And I think it's just, I think it was important before. Mm -hmm. I just think I had a big, huge block in between my, me and, and my greater intuition, you know, so it was, it was kind of dumbed down or, you know, not, not loud enough, but it was always really important for me. I, I've always been very self-inquisitive, like, huh, what's going on with me? Why do I feel this? Why do I think this? What do I really want? Why am I not happy? You know, always, always asking myself these questions. It's just as if it has been um, really enhanced. And it's almost as if, you know, when you're, <laughs> you're on an airplane or something, your ears won't pop. And then you get down and 20 minutes after you get off the plane, they pop and you're like, oh, I can hear everything. Whoa, you didn't even realize you were half deaf. And um, that's what I think is really what it's like for me. Yeah, yeah. So how do you cope now then? Um, when you get, I don't know, maybe overwhelmed with work or, you know, anxious like you were this morning or super stressed, what kind of thing do you do now to get through it? Um, my go-to things, and I have tried the gamut of things, and I've done a ton of research on what like scientifically works the best. Mm -hmm. you know, the things that scientifically work the best are actually some of the hardest things to get motivated to do, uh, which is interesting. But once you there's this there's this idea of motivation that is is kind of a farce to be honest with you because motivation doesn't just happen it's not just going to come out of the blue you actually have to act your way into feeling like doing the thing you need to be doing so um i would say okay right i'm i know that these certain things work the best so i'm just going to do them long enough to see if they work again sort of like an experiment getting really curious see if this works for me and then guess what? Once I started to realize it worked for me, my motivation was very, very high. So those things for me, and again, they're all according to science. There's so much science to back this up. But the first one is exercise, um, without a doubt. And especially for me, I, I consider high intensity exercise like the best, like interval exercise, um, something where I really get my heart rate up. And it helps me just burn off my adrenaline, burn off that cortisol. I can feel like a completely different human being. My perspective on life can go from gloom and doom to like, oh, everything's so help hopeful. Like, I don't even feel like I'm in the same universe uh, before and after. And so I joined a Taekwondo gym and I do Taekwondo. And then um, I have a spinning bike that I do that. And those are my go-to. And then I run. So those things, and those have been, I mean, just like game changers. And again, there are things that I used to do before drinking, but when drinking came around, I would walk into my house and I'd be like, huh, I'm stressed. Okay, well, there's a bottle of wine and there's my running shoes. Mm, looks yeah. a little easier to pour the wine and turn on the TV, you know? And so very, like the things that I, I used to do the spin bike all the time. We lived in Manhattan and like we had um, the best spin studios in the world and we'd go and it's high intensity, you know, aerobic exercise. I do it all the time. And then I really started drinking and it really dwindled off. And so just rekindling my love for some of those things is really cool. I used to kickbox all the time. Again, during my decade of like really intense drinking, it completely went away. So just bringing yeah. those things back has been huge. Mm -hmm. um, the other two things that I'll give, that I'll say, because they're really my go-to, actually I'll give three because they're my three other go-to. Number one is protein. I don't have it with me because I already finished it, but like I have a protein shake every morning. So I like have low blood sugar, hypoglycemic, and it goes up and down. And if I do protein, it evens that out. It takes uh -huh. that away. 
totally a game changer. I always have like a jar of nuts on my desk Mm -hmm. um, and like just always do the protein. Uh, The other thing is journaling, just writing it down because it allows me to become the observer. So it allows me to step out of the emotion and the feeling and say, okay, what am I feeling? Okay, what are all the voices trying to say? Is that really true? And it's not magic. Like it, it doesn't make you feel. I wrote for you know probably three or four pages this morning on the verge of tears, feeling so anxious, um, and it didn't make me feel better in the moment. Mm-hmm. But it allowed me not to get caught up in the feeling worse. It allowed me to put my thoughts on paper and be like, okay, those things that you're worried about you know, they're not actually true. You know, things are, you know, those, those things aren't true. So it allows you to really uh, sort of become the observer. And then the last one I'll say is just trying to get outside and be outside in the sunshine or in the sunlight as much as possible, you know, and even just a few times a day, I will literally like once an hour, once every hour and a half, I walk outside my office and I just take a few deep breaths and look around and just try to just be outside um, and just get like a little bit disconnected or connected mm-hmm. uh, back with myself. So those are really my go-to things. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to those. And they're all good tips for people, you know, who are going through the sobriety journey, especially getting outdoors, I think, um, because nature is a wonderful healer. And I think you just feel better, don't you, when when you get outside and like you say, take some deep breaths and just, you know, disconnect from what's going on inside and just be in nature that's wonderful yeah um oh i don't want to keep you too long but i would just like to ask you um obviously you've got the naked mind book the alcohol experiment book this naked mind live um and the alcohol experiment um which is the email facebook course and this naked mind intensive which bit of your job do you like the best? Probably this part, the, yeah. you know, talking to people and connecting. And yeah. I'd say this in terms of talking to you and also this in terms of like the the coaching, you know, the group coaching that I do and bringing people together. Um, the live event, it's the same thing. It's actually real life people face to face, you know, it's absolutely incredible. So I love, I love, love, love that. Um, but I also, I really do love the research and the writing too. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, working on a few other things and that's just kind of, and that happens literally in my notes app when I'm just out and about thinking of things or observing my own behavior in regards to whatever, whatever thing it is that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out. Um, and that's just really fun. I wouldn't say that it feels like a job though at all. It just really blends into my life. This like innate level of curiosity and being like, huh, I wonder why I really wanted that birthday cake, Mm, you know, sort of thing. So yeah. What is next then for Annie Grace and this naked mind? Um, so the next, the, the immediate next thing, which is really exciting is, um, for the, I've been working on the curriculum for this for three years. Uh, I was asked to do this within literally months of this naked mind being published. I was asked for by a psychologist from the NHS actually in the UK, uh, for a curriculum so that he could be trained to bring this naked mind methodology to his clients and patients. And, um, so since then I've been like, okay, what would that look like? How could I take what I kind of did naturally and put it into a curriculum where I could train others to do it? So we're launching, we just launched this naked mind Institute and it is a school where people can go through and become certified naked mind coaches and which is great because there's a huge, huge need, um, for people, you know, really to do that way we can do, um, more live alcohol experiments, Mm -hmm. more, um, programs and, you know, and then also individual and one-on-one coaching. And I have a vision that it would be amazing to start doing, you know, live, like one to two day workshops where you're just like, go through all of the, like, just really like rip the bandit off, do it all together, do it with a group that you keep in touch with. And you just have this, this amazing, proper, like totally transformational workshop where you walk in one person and you walk out 
you know, ready for your new life. And I think that's absolutely possible within, you know, even maybe one day, one to two days, I I have no doubt that that is a a possibility for people. So Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's really what's next, which is really exciting. That's fantastic. So exciting. So finally then, um, what piece of advice would you give to somebody then who is maybe watching this and they're thinking, mm, I don't know if sobriety is for me, I'm a bit scared. What, sh- you know, what should they do? What do you think? Um, I think they should, you know, first of all, is just realize that they're not alone. I think that's the number one thing is just, you know, take a look around, maybe look at some different Facebook groups or, or look online and, and just understand that like, you're just so not alone in this, you know, millions of people are questioning this. Mm-hmm. And then I think the second thing they should do is, is realize that, you know, is sobriety right for me might be the wrong question for them, you know, yeah. because I think that I stayed stuck for a long time in this fear of having to give up drinking. Mm-hmm. That was not what I wanted to do. I just wanted to, you know, put it back in its, its box. I wanted it to be small and irrelevant, but I didn't yeah. want it to be I didn't want to make it big because I was abstaining from it. And now I was, you know, living this life of, you know, in recovery and of abstinence and mm-hmm. like make it this big thing. I didn't want that either. I didn't want either of those things to be stuck drinking or to be stuck, not drinking, but thinking about drinking all the time, you know, yeah. that didn't sound good. So mm-hmm. um, I would say, take the pressure off yourself. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know what's right for you. What's right for you might be that you take a 30 day experiment and you go back and you're like, okay, I'm totally back in control. And I do this on occasion or what's right for you might be that you take a 30 day experiment. You're like mind blown. My life has never been better. I'm, I'm not going to drink anymore, you know, but, but the pressure of that question prevents us from actually asking the far more important questions of would my life be better if I drank a bit less? Like, is this good enough? You know, we ask this question and it's so loaded of, do I have a problem or Mm -hmm. am I an alcoholic? And those questions, they just can really keep us stuck. And the truth is that most people don't have to answer those questions. You know, you never have to answer the, do I have a problem to change? Yeah. Some people do. There are some people who will not, you know, enter a place or they're, they're chemically dependent and they, they need that title and label and definition in order to say, right now I have to change because Mm -hmm. this is who I am. And because of this, I can't drink anymore. And there are a percentage of people who need that. And and if that's you obviously follow your heart, but I think for, for the majority of people, and according to the CDC, the center for disease control, you know, only 10% of excessive drinkers are clinically dependent to alcohol. So 90%, you know, the majority of people they don't need to ask that, am I never going to be able to drink again question. They just need to enter the conversation with like curiosity and this level of, okay, is this good enough? I mean, is this good enough? Am I satisfied being hung over a few days a week? Is this good enough? Am I satisfied feeling, you know, a bit bloated because I've, I've been overdoing it with the beer? Like, mm. is this good enough? Because that question isn't scary. That question is like, all right, let me just try this out. That's actually the whole reason I created the alcohol experiment, um, which, you know, it's just 30 days. It's online. You get a video and an email. It's hundred percent free. And it's just to dip a toe and see like, huh, is this, is this good enough? And um, yeah, so if anybody's interested in that, you know, it's always free and it's at alcoholexperiment.com. Yeah, I'll put the links and things in the bottom of the video. Um, so yeah, maybe like you say, change the question. And instead of focusing on what you might be giving up, focus on how your life could be better if you changed it. Absolutely. Of alcohol. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Annie. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. And thank you so much for giving up your time. Um, And it was just lovely to meet you and talk to you. And I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share and subscribe. For more help and support, go to the Sober Bliss website, soberbliss.com. Connect with me on social media and learn how I can help you quit drinking and start living.